From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and Christian Science Monitor Washington Bureau Chief Linda Feldman. Welcome, Cindy and Linda. Hi, Kim. Thank you. Well, here are the issues. President Biden and world leaders gathered in Brussels this week for the European Council and an extraordinary meeting of NATO member countries. The president announced a new round of sanctions against Russia for its invasion of Ukraine as calls grow for the West to take stronger military action in support of Ukraine. Severe sanctions on Russia aim to isolate the country and create a deep recession there. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the Biden administration has determined that Russian forces have committed war crimes in Ukraine. The UN Human Rights and Refugee Commission reports the deaths of hundreds of people and the displacement of 10 million people in Ukraine. The figures are fueling debate whether Russian President Vladimir Putin is answerable to the International Criminal Court for the war crimes. And President Biden warned of the potential for Russia to carry out cyber attacks against U.S. interests or deploy biological and chemical weapons in Ukraine. Long-running efforts to revive the international deal to limit Iran's nuclear program are hanging in the balance after Russia's invasion of Ukraine threw up a new hitch. And President Biden's nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, faced intense questions from lawmakers in confirmation hearings, facing GOP skepticism for not aligning herself with a specific judicial philosophy. The first African-American female nominee gave new details about the way she approaches her job and the methodology she uses for deciding a case. Madeleine Albright, the first female U.S. Secretary of State, died on Wednesday following a battle with cancer. Her family said she was 84 years old. We'll look at her legacy. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Russia's aggression has prompted NATO leaders to re-examine the long-term strategic direction of the alliance, refocusing on Russia only months after Biden had pushed them to focus more on new challenges posed by China and climate change. But Linda, it is a situation that is not going away for some time. So what is really going to stop Russia's aggression at this point? It's hard to know what will stop it, but what we do know is that it's a stalemate. It's turned into a war of attrition. So we're now one month into the invasion, and it's clear that Putin's initial plan for the war, which was a quick, overwhelming assault, culminating in the capture of Kiev, the toppling of the government, installation of a puppet regime, that has completely failed. We're even seeing Ukrainians able to push back and regain territory they had lost. The Russians do not command the skies over Ukraine. So this is a huge embarrassment for Russia, not to mention the terrible destruction that it is wreaking along the way and all the lives that have been lost and the displaced people. I mean, it's a tragedy of unfathomable proportions. And it looks like this could really go on for a long time, months, if not years. And Cindy, your take on this. 
Well, I would agree with a lot of what Linda has said. And, you know, we have this emergency NATO summit and uh, usually these things don't, you know, attract that much of attention. But even the family photo now just is symbolically very powerful with President Biden and the other NATO countries literally standing together at a time of crisis in Europe. And we had Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Makarova, this week, recalling what happened when Nazi Germany built the first concentration camp in Munich in 1933 and saying, now we are seeing again atrocities and war crimes happening in Europe. History is repeating itself, she said. And we have seen that one of the very unsettling things is that Russia has moved thousands of Ukrainians into Russia and confiscated their passports, which to me does sort of summon that haunting concentration camp image. So it is a humanitarian catastrophe. And we are hearing now that the U.S. is also going to step up and may take in as many as 100,000 refugees. And we have more than 3.5 million Ukrainians who have left the country and some 10 million who are displaced. And with the United Nations, UNICEF now saying that half of Ukrainian children are displaced. So that is something that very much President Biden and Secretary Blinken are discussing with NATO and EU and G7 allies trying to up humanitarian aid to Ukraine and to come up with more sanctions on Russia and on Putin and tougher enforcement of those sanctions. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the Biden administration has determined that Russian forces have committed war crimes in Ukraine. Blinken said the assessment is based on a careful review of available information from public and intelligence sources. As with any alleged crime, a court of law with jurisdiction over the crime is ultimately responsible for determining criminal guilt in specific cases. So are we looking at the possibility that Putin may be charged with war crimes by the ICC? I think we are. Being accused of war crimes is a serious business. I mean, we've seen this, you know, in recent times with people like Slobodan Milosevic and other leaders in former Yugoslavia from that war. This is history repeating itself. But when it involves Russia, a country of, I think, over 144 million people versus Ukraine, whose population was about 45 million before the war started, this is just so massive. And Putin has such an arsenal at his disposal that the truly frightening thing about all of this is that we don't know just what Putin will do if he becomes desperate. You know, as of now, looking weak. I mean, launching a war is all about looking strong and powerful. And, you know, he's being defeated by a country a fraction of the size of Russia. And being called a war criminal, I'm sure he, on one level, doesn't care. But at the same time, this was seen as, for them, a kind of rhetorical red line. And the Russians are now threatening to cut off formal relations with the United States. The U.S. ambassador was summoned. And another problem during a time of conflict, which is that you want major players to be talking to each other. The U.S. has said that has reached out multiple times that the, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the defense secretary want to talk to their counterparts in Moscow to prevent the unthinkable, which is the use of weapons of mass destruction. And they can't get through. That's a huge problem, the inability to communicate with Russia.
Yes, and we are seeing the images of Russia's forces. They've destroyed apartment buildings, schools, hospitals, critical infrastructure, civilian vehicles, shopping centers, a maternity hospital in the city of Mariupol, as well as a theater where civilians were sheltering. So the world has seen plenty of evidence for a prosecution of war crimes, but it understandably will take years long in the legal process and international investigators are already beginning to look at it starting now. So I guess it will be some years down the road if we get to that point. Right. What struck me, though, Kim, is that, I mean, as you said, we've all seen the images of the Russian artillery bombing a maternity hospital in Mariupol. But for the State Department, it was basically nanospeed for them to come out and say, yes, we have determined that these are war crimes because they are very, very reluctant to classify something as war crimes or as genocide. And it can take years until something like that happens. So for them to say now that these clearly are war crimes, I think is very significant. Of course, they also want to make sure that evidence is preserved, that it's not lost, and that Ukrainians also psychologically feel like the world sees and understands what's going on there for what it really is. Yes, and President Biden is also warning that there is evolving intelligence that Russia is exploring options for cyber attacks from U.S. spy agencies. Usually when we get such a warning regarding Russia, a cyber attack does occur. So are companies and agencies taking this warning seriously? Absolutely. I mean, we saw a recent example of the Russians breaking into American computer systems, the DNC, you know, Democratic National Committee. The Russians have long been thought to be quite capable of conducting devastating cyber attacks. And so the question now is actually why they haven't done that yet. I mean, why, for example, did the Russians not go all out, even in Ukraine, take down their cellular networks and their electrical grids and their municipal water supplies and other utilities? There's a lot of theorizing as to why that hasn't happened. So, you know, it may be that they thought that this war would be over very quickly and they'd overthrow the Zelensky government and put in their own regime and they wouldn't have to resort to cyber war. It's also possible that Russia actually never had the capabilities that people thought it had. But it's one of those puzzling elements of this war, which is why they haven't deployed that asset in the early days. Very, very good question. And would Putin risk a full-blown cyber conflict with Washington at this time with them invading Ukraine? And another aspect of that is severe sanctions on Russia aim to isolate the country and create a deep recession there. But the economic fallout is already being felt by people around the world. People in Europe and here in the U.S. are already paying high prices for energy, fuel, and even food. So With additional sanctions being placed on Putin, where is that going to leave people in their everyday lives? Well, we know in Russia they're having long lines for basics like sugar and flour. I mean, I think the lines for sugar are in some places are an hour and a half long. Fist fights are breaking out. I was a student in the Soviet Union in 1980, and then a reporter over there during parts of the 1980s and early 90s. And I remember those lines quite well. We're seeing 
you know, Russians themselves are saying this is older Russians who remember the Soviet day. Well, this is just a return to the Soviet Union. And, you know, the older folks are well practiced in getting on lines and figuring out ways to acquire things sort of through underground sources. So then to me, the next question is, well, what does this mean for Putin? Who are they going to blame? Are they blaming Putin? Are they blaming the West? Do Russians even understand what's going on about what their government is doing in Ukraine? And the answer is that a lot of them don't because there's huge censorship in place. Putin has banned social media. People can't access Facebook. They can't access Instagram. Western media broadcasts are blocked. So a lot of people are in the dark and they're believing Putin's propaganda that this is what's happening in Ukraine is a special military operation designed to demilitarize and denazify their neighboring country, which is run by a drug-addled Nazi, which is horribly laughable, given, first of all, that Volodymyr Zelensky is Jewish, and we know that it's not a Nazi regime running Ukraine. But my next door neighbors are Russian emigres, and they're still very much in touch with friends and family back home in Russia. And they say a lot of their friends believe what they're hearing on television, friends and family, and some don't. So if you're a Russian living in Russia, you can get around censorship, you can get onto a VPN and access Western media, but you have to work at it. You have to be curious. And a lot of people are just busy going about their daily lives, dealing with the economic disruption of the sanctions, frankly. That's very interesting. And we are noticing some cracks in the system where we've been reading that Putin has fired and replaced a thousand of his close aides, apparently including his chef, that, you know, there are Western intelligence reports that he is very paranoid and very afraid that someone in his inner circle could get to him. And we are seeing a lot of younger Russians with some means leaving the country. And yeah, I'm also wondering, as Linda, especially uh, with younger people who are used to maybe going to McDonald's and Starbucks and Victoria's Secret and all these places that have closed, if they are really buying the official explanation, many of them are those who can moving with their feet and just saying this is not the bargain that we had with Putin, that we are going to accept some limits to freedom for some level of prosperity. Things are looking very, very grim indeed for Russia. And also, Cindy, long-running efforts to revive the international deal to limit Iran's nuclear program are hanging in the balance after Russia's invasion of Ukraine threw up a new hitch. And I know this is a very complex situation and probably can't be all summed up in a couple of minutes, but how would you sum it up in terms of the players and the issues? Well, you're right, Kim, in that we're seeing some of the same players here again with U.S., Russia, and China party to these Iran nuclear talks, and Russia very much making its presence known and insisting on guarantees, which Moscow apparently got from the United States, that they would not face trade disadvantages because of the sanctions, and the U.S. taking pains to say that the war in Ukraine and the Iran nuclear deal are two separate things. And I had not really realized to the extent that Russia was involved in Iran's nuclear program with taking spent fuel and other aspects of it. So basically, Russia very much stands to benefit 
more or less either way. They stand to benefit if the deal would actually happen, which is not looking very likely at the moment because of opening up their trade with Iran. And Iran is also basically enjoying the moment in the spotlight and enjoying this, you know, trying to get concessions as well in order to revive the deal. Very interesting aspect of all this, and I'm sure you will continue to stay on top of those developments and keep us informed. And it's time now for a quick break. And when we come back, a look at the confirmation hearings of President Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and Christian Science Monitor Washington Bureau Chief Linda Feldman. Well, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's first full day of questioning featured explanations of her approach as a judge, discussions of abstract legal concepts that can be pivotal in controversial Supreme Court cases, and her defense of a sentencing record that Republicans have claimed wasn't adequately harsh on certain crimes. Democrats gave Jackson plenty of opportunity to push back on the GOP attacks. So, Linda, what is your take so far on the hearings and on Katanji Brown Jackson's handling of the hearings? I think she's done well. I mean, just to cut to the chase, I think she'll be confirmed. I think she's highly qualified. She presents well. She's articulate. She's clearly very smart. And the efforts to attack her on her record are to be expected. She was prepared for those questions. She explained why she recommended, you know, lesser sentences than those recommended by the prosecutor. In particular, there was a lot of discussion on child porn, people who were prosecuted for that. And, you know, there was one case where the prosecutor recommended two years. The statute recommended 10 years. The prosecutor recommended two. She came in at three months. And, you know, there was a lot of hoopla around that, that she's soft on crime. And that, of course, goes right to politics. We're heading into midterm elections, of course, in November. But I think she explained herself well why she went that way. There's a big difference between somebody who downloads pornography versus somebody who physically abuses children. Not to say there's anything okay with having anything to do with child pornography, but I think she did a good job explaining herself and how she handles these cases. And then, of course, we got into a big discussion over critical race theory, which feeds right into the culture war that we're having in this country. And then morphed into a discussion of her role at an elite private school in Washington. She's on the board of trustees for the Georgetown Day School. And that allowed Ted Cruz to, you know, hold up some books that are being taught at that school, including one by the black scholar Ibram Kendi called Anti-Racist Baby. So it kind of devolved into political theater, which Ted Cruz is very good at. And I think it's one of these situations where I think unless she makes some major mistake or some major problem emerges about her record or her life story, I can't see how she fails. I mean, the Democrats have the narrowest of margins of control in the Senate. 
They control only 50 senators. That's half the Senate, with a tie being broken by Vice President Kamala Harris. That would be the first time, actually, that we'd ever have a vice president breaking the tie for a Supreme Court confirmation. The likeliest, perhaps, senator to break ranks on this would be Senator Manchin from West Virginia, but I just don't see him doing that on this issue. I would agree, Linda, and I think that Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson has performed very well. Some people watching the hearings have been disturbed by the grandstanding by some Republican senators, as Linda said, where you can see, boy, a lot of you know midterm politics coming on with these issues, these culture war, divisive issues as portraying basically anyone on the Democratic side as being soft on crime and the topic of abortion and critical race theory and these things which are playing out in midterm races across the country. So I don't think that they had landed really any blows on her. She was very well prepared, obviously a towering intellect and then just a very affable and likable person with a stellar record. So I think it was more some Republican senators just trying to get their, you know, sound bites on TV. But some people were disturbed, particularly because she would be the first African-American woman on the court. Her being asked all these things about, you know, our baby's racist. And several times she said, this really has nothing to do with the job that I'm here to, trying to get. So she's remained calm under pressure, and I think that she will be confirmed. And she got a lot of praise from African-American Democratic Senator Cory Booker, who said, you are worthy and you deserve to be here. And then it means a lot for African-Americans across the country. Yes, I agree, despite some of this opposition, that she most likely will be confirmed. And I wanted to move on to get to our last topic, which is some sad news. Madeleine Albright, the first female U.S. Secretary of State and the 64th Secretary of State, died on Wednesday following a battle with cancer, and she was 84 years old. She served as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations before becoming America's top diplomat from 1996 to 2001. At the time, she was the highest ranking woman in the history of U.S. government. Albright, who received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2012, was outspoken throughout the years. So I'll just get a comment from both of you. What would you say her legacy is? I would say, apart from being the first woman Secretary of State, it's that she was not just that, but also a human being. She was charismatic. She made people feel at ease. She was interested in people. And if you talk to her, she was interested in you. I never talked to her, I think. She appeared many, many times, actually, at our newsmaker breakfast, and she appeared many times. She liked talking to reporters. She was a mom. She was a grandma, but also fiercely smart, just fiercely. I mean, she was plucked out of her graduate school class with Zbigniew Brzezinski, the famous former national security advisor for President Carter. She was his student and he plucked her out of his class and got her jobs. And thus she was launched on her path to become the first woman secretary of state. These people skills are just great in diplomacy. A lot of diplomats are very quiet and do a lot of listening, which is also a good quality. But she had a charisma and a life story, frankly, that really got people to listen to her. 
Yes, I would agree. And one of the ways in which she just, you know, was tough as nails and fiercely smart, as Linda said, but where she sort of sparkled is that she used jewelry as a diplomatic tool. She had her famous brooches and she said that Saddam Hussein had called her a serpent. So when she was meeting with Iraqi delegates, she would wear a serpent pin. And if she was in a good mood, you know, it would be a butterfly. And then if she wanted somebody to watch out, it would be a spider. So she had this sparkling bubbly sense of humor. And I think it's one of her main accomplishments. She pushed to stop the slaughter of Kosovo Albanians and to help NATO move eastwards. And now as we see that that's one of the reasons that Russian President Putin is giving for invading Ukraine, Madeleine Albright helped to bring her native Czech Republic, Hungary and Poland into NATO, which I think is a proud legacy. And she has warned about Putin for years, even very recently in a New York Times essay. Yes, and we will have to close the show on those notes. My thanks go to BOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and Christian Science Monitor Washington Bureau Chief Linda Feldman. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. 